Hello and welcome back to episode 14 of the Hackable You podcast, your bi-weekly dose of cybersecurity news, the topic of the week and our secrets from the SOC. And this week I am sad to report that Alex is on holiday. He is not here, we've given him a break. He is currently doing his uh, staycation in the UK or doing something um, and Alex we really hope that when you uh, listen to this back you've had a nice rest and time away. But the good news is, as a step-in host for the week, we've brought back our favourite guest so far, which is Ollie. Ollie, good evening. How are you? Good evening. I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for having me back as well. Always good to have the double trouble Lacey Reed brothers here. Well, one Lacey Reed, the other one's a Reed. But uh, Will, how are you? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm good, thanks. I'm good. good. Glad it's the weekend. Oh, I know. Well, I'll tell you what, I've been on holiday as well, but not gone anywhere. And I, I have no idea what day it is. It's it's Friday. It's a it's a Wednesday. I have no idea what day it is, but um, we uh, we bounce through, and uh, I'll be back at work before we know it. Back into lockdown or whatever's going to happen next. Right. Let us jump into the cybersecurity news for this episode. So first up is my favourite of the week. And it's my favourite because it's an emerging trend that I think is going to be something we'll see um, coming coming to the boil over the next few months or so. And this is that QR codes are now at a... Uh, QR codes are representing a high level of risk to users and people for their day-to-day lives. Now, if you don't know what a QR code is, essentially it is a digital image that are placed on stickers and posters and things that most modern day smartphone cameras can read and they will process and publish information right into the palm of your hand. A good example of this is you could be at a bus stop with a QR code, you scan the code and it brings up the bus times or something very, very similar. Now, some researchers have done some digging and they've seen a risk posed to QR codes and a lot of this is because of the new track and trace applications and services uh, due to the coronavirus. For most bars, pubs, restaurants, if you're going to go and sit in and have a drink or a meal, you have to scan the QR code to say that you were there for the whole track and trace program to work successfully. And these researchers have basically said that there is a trend that is growing of malicious use of QR codes. Guys, what's your first impressions on this here? Do you think it's going to be a problem? I don't I don't think so on any mass scale. I think you might see some, you know, the occasional one here and there. But um, I think they're just, you know, too uh, overt to try and get get them into place and stuff. Um, I don't know. I'll I'll set up being surprised if, if, if anything kind of you know, large-scale major happens with them. But it's really interesting nonetheless. Yeah, I've seen examples of these used before for some really sketchy purposes as well. I remember a, um, a system that I was reviewing a few years ago and they were using QR codes as like a provisioning sort of um, tool. So you could um, take any device, scan a QR code, and it was, and the idea was it was meant to provision um a android mobile device as a corporate device so it would go and download the required installers for um all the different corporate software and then it would join it to the corporate ssl vpn you know very convenient fantastic idea unfortunately forgetting that if you leave that qr code anywhere then anybody can make any android device a corporate device just by scanning it um so i I think the implications of them have been thought through the other one that i'm thinking of actually is there was a recent uh, bug i think in firefox mobile for android 
um, which was to do with Android Intense, which is where an app can hand off to another app. So it, your app that you write on Android can tell Android to open another app to you know present the user with the right information. And there was a bug in Firefox that allowed um, sort of any um, for anyone on a local network to find those Android devices. Uh, that were running that vulnerable that, run, that was running that vulnerable version of Firefox, and then to get it to launch a specific intent, so you could get it to launch a browser, you know, with an exploit, yeah. for example, and it would exploit the um, the Android handheld. So all those sorts of things, I think, are all possible. But again, it's a bit like the USB stick in the car park example. You have to get someone to actually kind scan of it. Yeah, you yeah. Know, so scan it, go forth and, and do it, it first. first. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You mentioned there about some of the things that QR codes can do, but a really high level, some of the risks that were called out in this research were you can add contacts to users' phones, you can send texts and emails, and even potentially make payments. Um, you can follow people's social media profiles, but um, and adding in kind of preferred Wi-Fi profiles, which is the real kind of, uh, I guess, initial foothold type intrusion that might be possible because of this. But I think really simply, and what we'll, what I think we'll see more of but not in the sense of a mass uh, adoption of it will just be simple redirects scan url rather than going to the uh, the weatherspoons login page it's going to take you over to the, the fake one which looks identical because of a simple bitly url redirect and all of a sudden you've got some form of credential harvesting going on and arguably there's not much that you know uh, organizations can do to stop against this i think the advice that the research came out with were two uh, primary things that one should do, right? The first one was make sure you check that the QR code is from a trusted source. Now, I'm not I honestly wouldn't be able to sit here and tell you whether a QR code came from a trusted source or not. They're not they're not that popular for businesses to use for me to sit there and go, oh yeah, I trust that's from the dog and duck or whatever. And the second one was all around Bitly. So Bitly is the URL shortening services that takes, you know, www.hackableu.com forward slash podcast and puts it into a very simple bitly.ly slash podcast and it allows redirects to happen. And that's the real issue here. It's free. You can see lots of simple redirects and that. And to a user's eye, they're not going to maybe notice the kind of the URL redirect that's going on. But uh, no, I agree, guys. I think yes, this is a problem. I find it really interesting because it does jump on the bandwagon of track and trace and the whole NHS uh, COVID-19 um, schemes that are there to protect people. And again, it just goes to show that attackers will abuse anything that's meant for good for their own gain. And the second news item for this week relates to a Russian hacker responsible for the LinkedIn, Dropbox and Formspring hacks has been sentenced to seven years in prison in the US. So eight years ago, a guilty verdict was passed against a Russian hacker from Moscow being held responsible for stealing details of circa 200 million users across the three platforms. LinkedIn, as we know, the popular professional social network, Dropbox being cloud storage and a uh, defunct now social media called Formspring. This goes to show that cybersecurity convictions are being looked at harshly. No longer are they kind of swept under the carpet or not really looked on in the light they have done before the us are really coming down hard on on holding people to account for this even though this happened eight years ago what i find quite interesting in this specific case is the prosecution asked for 12 years and the defense were able to get that down to seven the charges were for uh, trafficking uh, devices and selling uh, stolen data and a whole load of other kind of nefarious things that go along with kind of hacking. 
However, one of the things they, they held on to here was that there was evidence that uh, the Russian hacker, who I'm not even going to try and pronounce their name, because if you can see it, I'm, I'm going to butcher it. Will, you're going to have to give it a go for me, given that I think you're the closest person to understanding the Russian language in this trio here. But uh, anyway, the, there's evidence to suggest that the hacker was working with unnamed co-conspirators of a Russian cybercrime forum for selling the data. And that's really what they came down hard on here. Guys, what do you make of this? A seven-year sentence for a crime that happened eight years ago. I would probably say, probably not harsh enough, but then, you know, I, I would probably say, say that about Because you're an ex-copper. Yeah. <laughs> Guilty of yeah. two proven innocent, probably, right? Yeah, he was only arrested. He travelled to the Czech Republic in October and then was extradited, extradited in 2018. So, wait, you know. Oh, okay. Was, right. yeah. well, I have no idea he why. He didn't do a Julian Assange. Yeah, exactly. Went the other way. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, you know, my my natural thing would be, you know, you should have got banged up for longer. But like you say, I'm a little bit more ruthless when it comes to sentencing than most, perhaps. Oh, I mean, Do I... I don't know if it deter. I don't know if it deters people though, and especially not kind of young cyber criminals. I'm not. I'm not convinced that harsher sentences work in general anyway. But mm, yeah. Um, but I think. Uh, you know, I'm not sure if this will send a message or not. If it will make people think twice about whether they would do something like this, I think probably in the moment, most, I'm going to guess, I'm just taking a guess here, that most young um, cyber criminals think that they're much more intelligent, they've got better skills, better tools than law enforcement, and they have the ability to, you know, remain hidden and, and not be tracked. Um, but that's that's just kind of my you know, rough view of probably where they sit on this. And technology and cybersecurity attitude has changed like like tenfold over the last eight years. So back then, LinkedIn, etc., their real focus here was growing user bases hard, fast, really quickly with less of an appetite for secure by design or security first. And um, I think it was just easier to facilitate these attacks. You know, one could simply do a little bit of reconnaissance, stumble across potentially a known vulnerability or to a bug or fish someone and bang them into getting lots of information, lots of details. That's what makes it so easy. Like you said today, people and, and young hackers are more technically able. Um, their ability to mask their locations, to hide where they're coming from and to obfuscate everything is far greater than it what it was eight years ago. And I think that's a fact. So, you know, I agree with you. Harsher sentencing, harsher sentencing I don't think is the answer. However, it does... It does give you food for thought around, okay, you know, well, if you are able to catch somebody who is using these new methods, potentially doing something more dangerous, then uh, are they really going to care? You know, they've probably done what they wanted to do by then. They've probably earned their cash from it in seven years. I don't know whether it goes to show as a real threat or a deterrent to anyone. Yeah, um, it's difficult to tell, isn't it? I guess, you know, some of these people could have made considerable amounts of money um, in their careers. And, you know, as you say, within seven years, if they spend seven years in prison, then the rest of their life living off the proceeds of some of the work they've done. And, you know, they're not going to lose those skills in prison. Um, but also they're not going to be doing anything potentially positive while they're sat rotting in a prison either. So yeah. um, it's it's very difficult to to get that balance between who is you know who can be rehabilitated as a criminal and who can and who is so dangerous that they need to be you know kind of you know locked up for society's protection. Exactly, um, yeah. a massive debate that we could easily talk about for a long time, right? About yeah. the pros and cons of prison for sure. 
there are going to be internet connected machines in prison most likely okay there might be severely locked down but Oh, we, they, they might think that, but you know, IT you've, got a, you've got a guy there who was able to break into, you know, some large organisations that, you know, should have had fairly impressive security measures. And I think that's the thing that always gets me about this stuff is there's no, there seems to be little focus on actually looking at why these, you know, companies, you know, kind of did get compromised and why exactly as you say you know they weren't prioritizing security, they were prioritizing growth of their company over, over data security. So you know, we can't be too surprised when this stuff happens. Will, I really want you to try and give the pronunciation of this <laughs> of this guy's <laughs> name a go. Hold on. You, you, no pressure. The wife is hoping I can always go and get her to come and pronounce it. <laughs> I think you might have to do that, right? Hold on. I'm yeah, going to put it in the uh, chat. Hold on. Yeah, right, right. I'll, I'll tell you, I'll give it a go first. I might myself look like a tit before we do it. Right, so I'll, I'll put it in the chat, right? So that to me is Yevgeny... Alexandrovich Nick Lewin. I'd say you get away with that on a conference call, Ed. <laughs> yes. I think it is definitely you give me. You give me Alexandrovich Nukovlin. Yeah, you're probably right, roughly. Should, should we get an answer from my wife? Yes, yes, let's do it. Yeah, I want to know. <laughs> that. Just in case I ever come across anyone with that name. What am I pronouncing? Yes. <clears throat> Yevgeny Alexandrovich Nikulin. Wow, I got that so <laughs> wrong. <laughs> <laughs> that was so far off. <laughs> oh dear, I need to learn some Russian. Jesus, that was embarrassing. Cool. All right, and let's move on to our last news item, which um, is actually a sad one. Um, not sorry to dull tone, guys, but police in Germany have launched a homicide investigation after a lady sadly died at Dusseldorf University Hospital after her treatment was delayed due to a ransomware attack. Now, Will and Ollie, I know you guys, we had a quick talk about this just before we hit record. Apart from this being obviously a very tragic and sad case, and from my understanding, the first one where a death has been linked to ransomware in the media, what's your guys' take on this? Do you think this is going to become... Uh, more frequent? Have we got to really start to act very quickly to avoid this from happening again? I think that um, there's a couple of issues here. I mean, ultimately, hospitals are becoming, you know, more reliant on these, on you know, IoT devices and technology in general. That's, um, you know, nothing that is going to go away. And if anything, it's going to become more and more important um, and more and more you know, integrated into a hospitals, you know, that kind of technology that can talk to other areas of the hospital, that is totally, you know, already partially in place, so I'd argue, and and even more on the way to, you know, the machines that can that can work with other machines to in order to keep you alive is, you know, is something that we all look forward to from a, you know, for improvement in medical healthcare. But that does bring those risks across. What's quite interesting about this specific case is that the group that were responsible for the ransomware reached out to the hospital to give the decryption keys out for free to ensure that you know they weren't impacted, which I guess goes to show that it is so easy to be caught in the crossfire for ransomware. It's, a, it's an attachment, an email. It's so easy just to kind of get this on your machine. Um, and if you're not well protected, then unfortunately, the the results can be deadly. Yeah, I found it like I say, really interesting that actually they weren't the the hospital wasn't actually the intended target here. So it was actually like an affiliated university um, who, they were, who the attackers were actually trying to target. And as you say, they they gave them the encryption key. But 
Um, there are tons of examples from the US. I think it's just on overload at the moment of um, healthcare providers and hospitals that are being, um, you know, compromised with ransomware, and, and as you say, having to pay. Uh, you know, some of them choosing to pay the randoms. I think to me, this comes back to was. I think lots of people are slowly coming to the realization that what matters most in in IT systems now is availability. Yeah, uh, <laughs> sadly, I think. Yeah, and I, and I think actually that's been really sorely overlooked. You know, over the years we've kind of got to the point where we've we've become accepting that things are down. You know, this is down for ten minutes, that's down for ten minutes. But you know, in examples like this, you know, those kind of systems have the literal impact. You know, over people's lives. And mm-hmm. you know, if emergency operations can't take place because the system is, you know, because the hospital is completely run by IT, um, or they're so reliant on the IT systems that they don't have paper backups that are effective enough, then, you know, that's a huge problem. So for me, you know, this problem isn't going to go away. And as you say, it's it's far too easy to be done over by this. It can just be something very simple that you know that happens. Um, quite why hospital systems are connected to the, to the internet anyway is beyond me i mean just take you know literally take them off the internet put them on a you know on a system where you've you know whitelisted what um people have access to mm. uh, and and keep that really strict you know and even things like email you know put your email um put your email clients on a citrix server that isn't connected to the same network as your um as you know your patient processing systems and the systems that they use in operating theaters and stuff like that have them on a separate domain i mean it it smells all of this of really poor architecture and not thinking about how to really segregate your systems so that you know one owned system doesn't take out your entire organization correct if i'm wrong here but i don't actually remember when WannaCry hit the nhs in 2017 i don't remember any direct links between patient deaths and the ransomware ever being announce unless you're aware of any and i think either that shows the nhs which doesn't surprise me actually had a really good paper-based system and a way of working or that it just went unreported or maybe the ransomware wasn't seen as a bit of a scapegoating excuse i don't know but i expect it's probably like you say there around the, the fact that much of the nhs is not particularly you know uh, i don't want to say smart but it's not it's not it's using those digitalized kind of interconnected devices yeah you know it, it is very still at least from my experience, my limited experience with the NHS is it's still very, you know, paper-based, um, mm. which, you know, is probably the right thing at the moment. Yeah, I think some of the trust systems, I, I, again, I'm not an expert on NHS systems at all, so, you know, please nobody write in and say that I'm talking <laughs> rubbish because I might be talking rubbish. But um, I think there's a couple of things. Some, A lot of the NHS systems aren't necessarily connected to each other directly so they're kind of although they have integrations on the back end they're not necessarily running on the same platform part of the same domain all that kind of stuff but i do remember um i do remember that they had some emergency departments that had to cancel you know operations and stuff like that and inpatient departments that did um but i think you know they had sort of slack elsewhere in the system to transfer those patients to hospitals that hadn't been affected and the last thing which actually arguably links really well into this ollie is what you mentioned earlier around US sanctions now uh, against paying ransomware and how actually if you end up paying the ransom, you could be now held to account and even prosecuted for it. Yeah, so it's quite interesting this one. Um, So the US Treasury have come out and said that companies that pay um, ransomware payments uh, to cyber criminal gangs have or may kind of fall foul of, of, you know, US sanctions um, if that group is part of a country or a place where there are US sanctions against transferring money. Um, And I think it's quite interesting because I think a lot of companies rely on this sort of a say, 
last ditch resort, you know, when they realise they've got no backups, when they realise that, you know, in in hospital situation, they, they've got people that they have to treat or, you know, in the shareholder situation, you know, the investors are on the phone asking what's going on um, in a very polite way, obviously. Um, you know, I think companies kind of look to this and think, well, at the end of the day, you know, we could pay. Um, we know it's going to take us months, maybe years to recover from this in reality without doing that. Um, and so they see it as a sort of, you know, viable get out clause. It's a cheaper course, option yeah, for a lot of cases. Yeah, and I think a lot of companies don't recognise, and it's that societal impact, you know, they don't recognise that their money is clearly not going to legitimate, you know, sources and means. Um, and, you know, they have no idea where that money is being used and what it is financing. They don't see companies as people's jobs and livelihoods. They yeah. see them as, a, as they are more, you know, it's just another, it's, a, uh, it's, it's like shoplifting, don't people are People are more than happy to shoplift because they feel like there's no there's no victim with that. And it's exactly the same thing in companies. People don't feel that by doing ransomware against a company, they don't feel like there's any victim there. Yeah, if the company goes bust and people lose jobs and made redundant and the kind of domino snowball effect off the back of that, they unlink themselves from it because they're so, I guess, distant from that real tactile response they can see. Fantastic. All right, well, that wraps up the cybersecurity news for this week. Let's hop into the topic of the week. So topic of the week this week is going to look at the role of data privacy and the role of information security and why they are the same but why they are different. In layman's terms, same, same, but different. The reason I want to talk about this week, guys, is about is all around the NHS uh, COVID-19 track and trace app. So if you haven't downloaded it, I do highly recommend you go and do your bit and download the app. Essentially, uh, it's been developed by the government and relevant third parties to allow um, people or users to go to a restaurant, scan a code, and um, it uses uh, Bluetooth to kind of see who you've been near and who you've kind of connected around to uh, alert you to the fact if you've been exposed to someone who has t- tested or is positive to COVID-19 and a whole lot of other things that kind of go with it. It is a great way or to, that shows technology as an enabler in this um, pandemic. However, there are lots of people out there, and this is why I want to talk about it today, who are saying... I'm not going to download the COVID-19 track and trace app, the NHS app, because I don't want to give the government all of my data. And these are the same people who have signed up to Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, you name it. Every bloody social media website under the sun who, if you've seen The Social Dilemma on Netflix, have been exposed to the amounts of data they've collected on you. This really sparked in my mind that there is a a clear disparity between data privacy and security and 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 they both like a venn diagram they meet in the middle but can also be poles apart and one can hold another to account ollie give me your best one sentence answer to what is data privacy well you know to my mind data privacy is about um protecting the rights of individuals and their data and being clear about um what you're using data for uh assuring that that data is used for that purpose in your organization and assuring the life cycle of it that is you know created stored processed and destroyed in the right way um, and making sure that all of that fits within the legal framework that your organization is is working in i think that's bang on um, couldn't argue with yeah. that essentially information security 
is related to the confidentiality, availability and integrity of the systems we own and manage that facilitate data and our day-to-day -day operations. So you can see there, within a sentence, they are very, very different. One is purely focused around legislation, the way data is stored, making sure it's used appropriately, almost agnostic to an IT system. And information security relates to the CIA, confidentiality, availability and integrity of the systems that process data and run business operations, etc. So as we have modernized uh, in the world and as the digital footprint has been growing and our digital shadow essentially is growing, you can see how data privacy has bled into information security and security operations and and vice versa you only have to watch a couple of documentaries on netflix like the social dilemma the most recent one and then the the great hack which is all about the cambridge analytica scam to really understand the impact that data privacy and information security have on one another essentially a hacker is going to want to get into your organization and steal what is valuable to you in most cases that is data now, we can put a load of IT systems in place that try and stop an attacker. However, from a data privacy point of view, there are ways in which we should be securing that. And there are ways in which that data should be separate and segregated and how it should be used. More often than not, if you're involved in a cybersecurity incident that deals with some form of uh, related customer data or business financial sensitive information, the data privacy team are going to be involved and under the regulation GDPR a company has to have a named data privacy officer. If we dial back to kind of why I wanted to talk about this week when you look at apps like the NHS you know test and trace app yes you have to sign up and give some personal information over yes it's going to collect information on you where you've been what you've been doing who you've been in contact with however in most cases, that is very minimal data compared to what has already been collected on you on things like social media, browsers, and all these other, you know, internet connected devices that we've already mentioned before. You know, what goes on in your mind when you think about data privacy and kind of information security together? I think, I think for a start, it's important to recognise and point out as well that, you know, that a large amount of the criticism of why people won't download the app um, they may say it's under the guise of, you know, because I don't want the government tracking me, but they are also the same people that um, are also um, saying that we shouldn't be locking down and we shouldn't be, you know, testing people for coronavirus. You know, I'm not, they, they, not, not necessarily coronavirus deniers, but people who are, yeah, people who are very much against against the idea that the government um, is a, being a bit, a bit of a nanny state. You know, they are often the same people who are saying, Oh, I don't trust that app whilst we're on Facebook because it's not about the app. It's because it's it's about their, their disagreement with with the processes processes and and options. Political that the government view and political agenda. Yeah, it's yeah. politics, so, so, murky water. Yeah, exactly. And 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 half the problem with this is that somehow we've got in 2020 to a situation where we have managed to politicise a virus, and you know it, it's a bit it's a bit of a it's a bit mental to be honest. But you know we are where we are. Um, I think that. There is a, another subsection of people who are concerned, not necessarily around, um, you know, the data that is collected, but perhaps the way it is collected or the way it is handled or just the general security of the app. Um, that is a different angle to the people who are, you know, just worried about being tracked. Um, I think there's, there's there's different kind of different levels of, of, of people's concerns about, about this. Um, most of the concerns in the kind of cybersecurity world of all, that I've seen are all people that are worried that 
the apples perhaps rushed out not built very well you know not really not really concentrating around the security of things because it's all about delivering political purposes and political points and stuff rather than delivering a solid safe application so i i think it's actually quite complex um around people's concerns with it mm. Yeah, I I totally agree. I think the problem is that the government haven't done themselves any favours. So, you know, they started by completely going against the best advice of, you know, every sort of privacy expert out there by developing originally an app that stored, but, you know, kind of circumvented, if you like, the, the normal API, the, the APIs on devices to kind of track raw data about devices that were seen and then they were going to store this in a giant great big database and they were going to do various things with it it's like what could go wrong um, <laughs> and you know they've now 180 on that and said oh okay we will actually use the um you know the kind of more privacy uh focused um api that, that apple and google worked on mm. uh, which is good it's positive because you know it only releases information that's required and it tells you before it does it and i think that's really good stuff i think the problem is that the government have already burnt their bridges with it you know by um by kind of not listening to expertise and this is sort of unfortunately i think one of the the things we're seeing with the, the government that we've got at the moment which is um you know, experts are sort of being seen as troublemakers, people who just want to be, you know, who just want to be sort of there to say something different or something against what, you know, what they're trying to do. And, uh, you know, I think, I think like you say, well, the problem is it's become politicised, but then I suppose it always would have been in a sense. Um, you know, the app's been touted as world beating and, you know, uh, it's the best app that any country has and this kind of stuff. And it clearly isn't. Yeah. Um, I think it should just be, I mean, I, I guess, being a, a liberal of like the the classic definition i think it's just up to people whether they use it or not personally i don't think i would use it because i don't really go anywhere <laughs> and <laughs> i can see the gym also, behind you <laughs> yeah exactly uh, and you know I, I think in reality just because i you know i'm around somebody else um who i happen to get a bluetooth connection with doesn't mean i was next to them or near yeah. them or you know it doesn't mean anything really and so i think what would be really interesting is some transparency about um what the accuracy of the app actually is and how well it's actually identifying people and how useful it's been i don't expect that we'll get to the bottom of it but it would be useful to to know and i think the other problem is that the government don't have a great track record with use of data unfortunately yeah, yeah. You know, it's kind of when they started sort of being very cagey about whether they were going to write into law that this data would only ever be used for COVID-19. And they said, oh, no, we're not going to do that. It's when when you kind of, you know, when the alarm bells start ringing for me is, well, you know, why won't you just write that into law? That doesn't seem that contentious. You're only ever going to use it for this, you know, mm. for this purpose. So, um, yeah, I totally agree. You mentioned two really good points there, which link back to the whole data privacy versus information security thing is and the first one you said it was about transparency and a lot of data privacy's role is making a company be as transparent as possible with what they do with data you know data is the binary numbers that make us who we are nowadays it is the valuable asset that we are as a human to an organization our data and transparency is so key and a data privacy team are there to ensure that we are transparent with our data we're only doing the right things for it and the second point you mentioned there was all around understanding a little bit more about how the app works um, and actually having that published in a 
easy to read, easy to understand kind of layman's guys to what happens when I walk into a pub with the app installed on my phone. You know, what is Bluetooth really doing at a simple level and how does it, like you mentioned, how does it actually um, join the fact that I was in a pub near someone that has tested positive for coronavirus? And I think, you know, Will mentioned some really good points there about lots of the early issues that were mentioned were about security of the app. It was rushed out, quickly developed. There are going to be security vulnerabilities there. And that's where the real... This is where you can see in a real day-to-day scenario how data privacy and information security have kind of met in the middle in that Venn diagram because we have a, we have a, an application running on a smartphone on an IT system that needs to be secured to make sure it can't be um, breached and that data can't be stolen from it, essentially. And then you have data privacy experts saying that you're doing the wrong thing or you're doing the right thing and who are trying to protect the types of data that's collected and how it's collected. So... If you're in an organization now, you're in a security team, you know, data privacy team, you're going to be working together closely for the foreseeable future. I say that. There's going to be a massive breach next week now, and I'm going to have to sit here and eat my hand. (laughs) (laughs) We will end the topic of the week there and move swiftly on to our final segment, which is Secrets from the Sock. This week's Secrets from the Sock is going to take us into the future. Should I say back to the future? Is that too old school? Um, This week we're going to be talking about uh, security automation and the role that automation has in your day-to-day role within a sock. If you haven't heard of something, if you haven't heard of this term before, there is an industry-known uh, jargon called SOAR, S-O-A-R, which stands for Security Orchestration Automation Response. Is that right? That's it. You yeah. saw me pause there. I really had to think about that. There's too many bloody acronyms. So um, at high level, a SOAR solution are ones that promise to take your basic day-to-day tasks within a security operations centre and automate them, making sure that your analyst's time is not wasted on simple, boring tasks that can be done by a machine, and they can focus on the more nitty-gritty stuff. But the real story in Secrets on the Sock this week is all about how products like Source Solutions and automation are becoming ever more important within a security operations centre. What is your take on automation firstly? Is this going to replace jobs? Will we see socks be smaller because of automation? And do you think it's an important factor that people take forward today? Um, I think the thing to think about is how busy, if you're working in a sock at the moment, how busy are you? And my guess is going to be the answer is you're very busy yeah. and you're over, you know, you're overflowing with work to do. So um, like everything with automation, I think, um, we shouldn't we shouldn't fear it because it will come anyway. We should embrace it. We should do our best to use what you know the, the best of it, and see it as an opportunity to you know if if you are working in a sock and you know you're performing processes that you think are um, you know turn the handle you know could be done you know repeatedly <clears throat> excuse me very easily, um, then you know you're not probably going to be you know you're not going to feel like you're bringing a huge amount of value potentially if you're just doing that work um security i said this before when i kind of um uh, when i was on before actually for my topic of the week um but security problems are solved by people right they're not yeah. going to be solved by algorithms or by automation they'll be solved by people working together to you know pick through you know lists of legacy systems that need to be decommissioned and slowly you know get them off the network and you know um to kind of you know upgrade bits and pieces to you know um 
to kind of really unpick those nitty gritty problems that that you know prevent people from you know uh, from securing their their networks and systems. So I think SOAR is absolutely you know a good technology, something that people should embrace. And if you're in a SOC and you can identify those. Um, you know, processes that can be automated, then it's a great thing to do. Um, I remember reading an article um, a while ago, and it was titled something like um, the top 10 um, jobs that will be, I won't say future-proof, but, you know, improving or increasing in the future. Now, I remember the article saying that, you know, some of the jobs that would be improving were more generalist security, you know, information security sort of analysts that would, that have a kind of larger picture of things and they're mm-hmm. making the kind of the, the perhaps the, the higher level decisions and you know humans aren't humans aren't very good at analyzing deep data so you know machines and automation is perfect for that kind of thing but machines still can't make those contextualized decisions yeah. like we can they still can't can't learn in quite the same manner that we can um, and they can't communicate in the same manner that we can and that's i think that's the big thing is is you can have all the all the automation that you want, but you you can't automate that communication, that human you know, human human communication, which is vital during incidents. It's vital during, you know, building new products. It's vital during the the day to day running of operations. You know, my suggestion would be if you're looking to do automation, you would love to dabble in maybe trying to automate a very simple process within your security operations center. A good security analyst will learn and understand uh, some form of programming language. Personally, I think Python is the easiest. Some may disagree with me, and there are plenty of others you can learn there. But guys, what what would you recommend for a junior analyst who wants to, you know, dip their toe into automation to make sure they're kind of future proofing themselves? What would you suggest that they do? I think that you know, like you said, Python is a, is a good shout. Um, but there's there's also there's quite a few kind of um, data science courses out there which are free. And okay, yes, some of them do teach the kind of you know the important aspects of Python, but they teach um, how to analyze data as well from a very basic kind of skill level. And being able to analyze data is is actually a human skill, uh, yeah. you know, that, that you then can augment and, you know, and hopefully work with and improve with, with, with the automation. But, but at the start, it needs to be a human skill and you, you need to learn that analytic, that, and you need to learn that analytical mindset. That's a really good point. Yeah, completely agree. I think there's two things for me. First is become basically security people will need to become developers. Um, so whichever language you learn, learn something and get an appreciation for for how to write, you know, sort of fairly good quality code. Um, I think it matters a little bit less what you pick. I think once you've learned one programming language, I think a lot, of, you know, a lot of knowledge is very transferable once you yeah. understand sort of some of the fundamentals. And actually, like Will says, like data is the key right if you can't understand um what data model you're working to how best to classify stuff how to codify everything um you know you're going to get into a big mess and and so i think those two things are two things that um you know are kind of your accessories you know your things that you should be learning about on the sidelines as well as security you know to really help your your career in the future um because it's it's all going to be about integration systems talking to each other you building those integrations you know bolting bits on where stuff doesn't quite you know add up and line up so i guess at a higher level it is understanding the numbers that are in front of you and learning the technology to crunch those numbers for you 
anyway guys that wraps up the podcast for this week thank you so much for being on ollie it's great to have you again as always alex you uh you traitor we hope you're having a great holiday uh, <laughs> we look forward to having you back on but let us wrap up the podcast with our key takeaways from this week my key takeaway is going to be around what we just spoke about so um you know if you are coming into the industry or if you are you know early doors in the industry it's an absolutely perfect time to start getting your head around you know data science um there are loads of courses out there uh free ones especially that can help you give get that kind of introduction i would say make sure you're supplementing your um information security learning with uh some kind of more traditional development learning as well i think it's useful on two fronts i think you learn a bit about how developers work and you are going to end up having to work with development teams so it's good to understand the language that they're using what they mean when they say you know scrum agile you know um all those kinds of you know buzzwords that might sound like buzzwords but actually are things that are running development teams these days um and yeah just just kind of make sure that you've got some sort of you know accessory interests things that that build other skills that are going to be useful and transferable into your security career and my key takeaway for this week relates to QR codes, a potential emerging threat with the ability for scanning a QR code to complete various operations on your smartphone. Maybe try it. Custom create a QR code, stick it up in your office, see how many people scan it. Is this a valid threat? Watch out for those QR codes up in pubs and just uh, stay frosty, guys. But thank you all for listening. Um, We'd love to hear from you. If you guys have any questions, queries or stories you want to send us, do email us at info at hackableu.com. I'd like to thank Ollie and Will for joining us and we will catch you all in the next episode.